Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking in the Come Follow Me curriculum at 1 Corinthians 1 through 7. And as we all know, these are epistles from Paul, and this is to the saints at Corinth. And it's fun to talk about this having visited Corinth personally earlier this year, ancient Corinth anyway, and seeing what it was like and seeing that it was really kind of a center for trade and a place where there was the Isthmian Games, so very busy, very populous place. And when people came to town to hang around, to watch the games or to wait for their their goods in a ship to go over the isthmus to avoid sailing all the way around the southern part of Greece there. Uh, lots of bad things happened. And we kind of see some of that reflected in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, some of the things he mentions, but also the challenges of a growing church. For example, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I wrote the word Zion in my margin. Same mind, same judgment, no divisions. What a challenge, because first of all, remember that Paul, especially we see this in the book of Acts, would always go to the synagogue first and teach there from the Torah that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of a Messiah. Some Jews believed, some kicked him out. But you've got Jews coming into now the gospel of Jesus Christ, accepting Jesus as the Messiah, but they bring a lot of their their culture, their past, their beliefs with them. You've also got Greeks who are coming from a, a pantheon, literally a pantheon, a a panorama of gods in their background and in their culture, and we're trying to put them all in the same church. An example that I like to, to think of is that my brother served his mission in Japan, and he had a completely different approach did than I did serving in the Philippines. The Philippines is in the South Pacific, but it's about 95% because of the conquistadors who came in and converted or forced people into Christianity. So the approach was different. We could use the Bible. We could approach with our common belief in a Father in Heaven and in Jesus Christ and in His uh, atonement. But what would my brother Kendrick do in Japan? Well, he had to go in and just start conversations with people. They often taught English classes and so forth. And then people would ask why you're here, and they would start from scratch teaching about God. It reminds me of Acts chapter 17, when Paul speaks in Athens and tells them what kind the nature of God. He doesn't use any Old Testament because he wasn't talking to people who believed in the Old Testament. That's what he saved for the synagogue. But he came and taught them about this unknown God that you ignorantly worship in Acts 17 and told them that God is our Father, He's our Creator, He's our Ruler. He will be our judge, and he raised Jesus from the dead. So, if we continue with this idea in verse 10 of, hey, there's divisions, and you need to be of the same mind and the same judgment, we we learn that maybe some of these people have been baptized by different people and are kind of following them as disciples or something. Verse 11 says, 
For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. The house of Chloe, they had house churches back then. They didn't have a building, so they probably met in somebody's house. And maybe that's what this refers to, a house church of Chloe. Verse 12, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my known name. So he's trying to say it's all supposed to be eyes on Jesus. We're supposed to be focusing on Christ. And this is his gospel. And man, that's got to be hard with these divisions. In fact, one of the things that he mentions, verse 18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. Why is it foolish? Well, about the last thing any Greek god would do is come to earth, make himself subject to mortals, and let them kill him. Crucify him on a cross, that just sounds foolishness. So Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, in verse 25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, in verse 27, speaking of a verse that has wonderful application today, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So, one way to look at that is those who are considered foolish in the eyes of the world. The world considers itself pretty smart. And we in our church, and no offense to missionaries, I have one out right now, they're young. Most of them haven't completed college. Some of them have started a little bit. Some may never. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, in the world's eyes anyway, to confound the things which are mighty. And it reminded me, when I saw this, of a verse in section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not referenced there, but it could easily be. And this is section 35, verse 13. Wherefore, I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations by the power of my spirit. And I've always loved verse 14. And their arms shall be my arm. And I will be their shield and their buckler. I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me. And their enemies shall be under their feet, and I will let fall the sword in their behalf, and by the fire of mine indignation will I preserve them. When I teach the story of Ammon in the Book of Mormon, when Ammon tries to or sees this situation going on with King Lamoni's servants who are watching the flocks, and then Enemies come and scatter the flocks, and Ammon says, I will show forth my power. And then he corrects himself, or the power which is in me, in restoring these flocks to the king. This is all in Alma 17. So, is it Ammon's power? Is it God's power? Ammon acknowledges, well, actually, it's God's power. And it says, as you continue that story, that he slew one, he cut off the arms of six, and the others were not a few, something like that. And it actually uses these exact words. He caused them to flee by the strength of his arm. And so I'd like to connect that 
to section 35, their arm shall be my arm. And when you're doing the work of the Lord, you're using his arm. Maybe a good way we can look at that. And that is how those who are weak and unlearned can thresh or thrash the nations, as it says in section 35. So that's in 1 Corinthians 1. Continuing with that idea in 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I believe that, I believe it was Brigham Young who said that Mormonism, as we used to call it, embraces all truth. If something's true, it belongs to Mormonism. So we're not afraid of science, but science seems to keep moving the goalposts. It seems to keep changing. And what we used to believe about this, well, now we believe this. And that's why you have to buy a new science textbook every couple of years in college, because the answers have changed in the book, right? In fact, a fun example that I remember, I have a book by Carl Anderson, who's kind of the church's expert on Kirtland, Ohio. And he wrote a book called The Savior in Kirtland, talking about all his appearances. And somewhere in there, he mentioned that the leading astronomer of Joseph Smith's day was a guy named Frederick Herschel. Forgive me if I've mentioned this to you folks before. And that he believed there were 90,000 stars. Now, if Joseph Smith had gone to the leading astronomer of the day, if Joseph Smith had simply invented or composed the Book of Moses he wouldn't have said something like, millions of earths like this would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, which is a number closer to what we believe today. We can't even estimate. (laughs) But back then they thought maybe there were 90,000 stars. So that's not man's wisdom. Man's wisdom seems to keep changing. But what what is real truth? As we continue in 1 Corinthians, we get it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And I think that as we even look at a first century world and what they did and what they believed, we can kind of nod and say that, well, what's going to happen in our world in the next couple of hundred years? What will change that makes us think of things differently? One of the things that Corinthians mentions is as I mentioned, comparing spiritual things with spiritual in 1 Corinthians 2.13. There are other ways besides the scientific method to learn truth. Yes, there are the five senses, and we will talk about this next year when we look at uh, Korahor, who said things like, you cannot know of things which you do not see. Well, seeing is one of the five senses. We see, we hear, we feel, we touch, we taste. Are there any other ways of learning truth? Well, we would say, yes, we learn by the Spirit, but some would completely discount that. President Marion G. Romney, which some of you might remember a long time ago, I think he was a counselor to President Kimball, he said this, when you meet with the problem of the things of God, remember they are not learned through the scientific process. You need never be worried by what anyone who is spiritually dead says about God. You should have patience and sympathy for such an one. Learn all he can teach you about the things of science, the arts, literature, 
and every other field of worldly learning. But when it comes to the things of God, remember, they are only known and revealed and born of the Spirit. Exactly. There is another way of learning truth, and it's, it's by the Spirit. I, I want to spend a minute on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, especially verse 8, where Paul says, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. A lot of people have misunderstood that he might be saying he is single. Let me read from the book called Verse by Verse, Acts Through Revelation, by D. Kelly Ogden and Andrew C. Skinner. This is a great commentary. Many have misunderstood Paul's teachings because of mistranslation and misinterpretation. In other words, many have missed the intended points of Paul's instructions. Some have pursued the ascetic life, justified celibacy, and promoted anti-marriage traditions because they've taken statements in this chapter out of context. All scriptures taken together and in context endorse marriage. Some early Christian apostates, Gnostics, and others believe the highest spirituality and purity could be achieved only by renouncing sexual contact. These groups blamed the fall of Adam and Eve on human sexuality. Paul strongly refutes this notion in 1 Corinthians 7 and affirms the importance of mutual sexual responsibility. Let me go to page 135 in verse by verse. This counsel from Paul is a sensitive treatment of sexual responsiveness in marriage, and it may suggest that Paul himself was or had been married, or seems to have understood these things from experience. Other indications that Paul may have been married include the following. Number one, his writings portray a positive attitude toward marriage. See 1 Corinthians 11.11 and Hebrews 13.4. Second, of the 613 commandments that the Jews believed to be found in the Old Testament, marriage was the first, and Paul was at one time a strict Pharisee. Marriage was a solemn duty, and he knew it was not good for man to be alone. Third, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, or ever hoped to be one, he had to be married. Fourth, during Paul's missions, he was possibly a widower, or maybe his wife had left him at the time of his conversion. If he had no present wife, he may have chosen not to remarry because his heart was so set on the work further commentary on Paul's marital status and his views on marriage may be found in Sperry, Paul's Life and Letters, that's one book, Bruce R. McConkie, Doctrinal New Testament Commentary, and Richard Lloyd Anderson, Understanding Paul. So those things, I think, are helpful. Continuing, in verse 8 that we read, where it says, is it good for them to abide even as I? This is back to Ogden and Skinner. Some translations set up a misleading comparison, as the following examples. The Revised Standard Version says, Remain single as I do. The Phillips Bible translation says, Remain unattached as I am. The NIV, or New International Version, says, Stay unmarried as I am. The Greek text simply does not say this. Twice the comparison is made, Even as I myself, or even as I. Any hint of whether or not Paul was married does not come from these verses. The earlier one, verse 7, which says, For I would that all men were even as I myself, is strongly used to say that Paul has the gift of self-control. So both verses are asking the saints to follow Paul in exemplifying that quality. Such instruction is appropriate, both for the married 
or unmarried. Makes it very different there to understand it that way. Perhaps I could uh, close with 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. We read this and we see that Paul is definitely pro-marriage. Footnote 3c, I love the, uh, the list of topical guide subjects that refer to this verse, 1 Corinthians 7.3. Benevolence, family, love within, marriage, continuing courtship in. So clearly that is what Paul is talking about. So I hope this introduction to these chapters has been helpful to you. Remember that in Corinthian, there was great unchastity going on to the point where they actually used the word to Corinthianize, or some translation of that was a a synonym for fornication, because they had this temple on top of the mountain in Corinth called the Acro-Corinth, where there were, according to Strabo, a Roman historian who is known to have exaggerated, but he said a thousand temple prostitutes working there. So no wonder Paul is going to talk about marriage and chastity and self-control. And that's what he meant when he said, I would that all men were even as myself. Well, I hope this is helpful, and we'll continue with Corinthians next time. 